Well, we come this evening to Job 41. Reading the entirety of that chapter, Job 41. Again, God's holy and inspired word. Though the flower fades and the grass withers, the word of the Lord endures forever. Give your attention to the reading of God's word, Job 41. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fishhook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he, will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird, or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. I will not keep silent concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his goodly frame. Who can strip off his outer garment? Who can who would come near him with a bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth is terror. His back is made of a row of shields shut up closely as with a seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezing flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth goes flaming torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostril comes, comes forth smoke, as from a boiling pot and, a, and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals. And flame comes forth from his mouth. His neck abides strength, and terror dances before him. The folds of his flesh stick together, firmly cast on him and immovable. His heart is as hard as a stone, hard as the lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the gods are afraid. At the crashing, they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He counts iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. For him, sling stones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. His underparts are sharp, are like sharp potsherds. He spreads himself like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him, him he leaves a shining wake. No one, no, or one would think the deep to be white-haired. On earth there is not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king 
over all the sons of pride. As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Fact and fiction. Now these are two things that we typically understand as completely distinct and separate. They have nothing in common and even opposed to one another. Likewise, as modern pragmatists, we sometimes value fact as useful, stable, and serious, while fiction is unprofitable, silly, and for little kids. Maturity should grow you out of fiction for fact. And yet, is this that accurate? Are these really so different? Well, with more experience, it becomes evident that sometimes fact isn't so distinct from fiction. What seems like fantasy sometimes can be true, and what looks like a sober fact can turn out to be a falsehood. So also, it's not unusual that creative stories can teach us a lot more about life um, than just frank nonfiction. Fairy tales may not be fact, but they can be wise. Thus, prudence instructs us that we don't really outgrow the benefits of fiction or fairy tales. And as a capstone of our Lord's speech, the Lord leads, leads Job down this very path where fact and fiction seem to blur together. And yet, the outcome is clearly wisdom. So in this second oration of the Lord to Job, he has confronted Job on a bad comparison in chapter 40. In order to establish his righteousness, Job had asserted that his justice was better than God's. God had denied Job his day in court, but Job had never did this to one of his servants. Thus, Job faulted the Lord to justify himself. And to test the validity of this, the Lord challenged Job to match him. He said, adorn yourself with majesty, abase the proud where they stand. If Job thinks he can be like God in justice, well then let him try. Yet to give Job a handicap, Yahweh put forth a champion. Before going toe-to-toe with the Lord, can Job best one of God's grand creations, behemoth or the hippo? Well, Job was no comparison with the hippo, whom he could never defeat in battle. Job had to bend the knee before the hippo, and so how much more before Yahweh? The Lord, though, is not yet finished. He's going to put Job through another round with a different champion. He gives him a mulligan with behemoth, and now he puts forth Leviathan. Can you fish out Leviathan with a hook? And yet who, or what, is Leviathan? Well, unlike Behemoth, who only appears here in Scripture, Leviathan makes other appearances. Leviathan is a known biblical name. Thus, in Isaiah 27, Leviathan is described as a twisting and fleeing serpent. He's a dragon of the sea whom the Lord slaughters with his own sword. Similarly, in Psalm 74, Leviathan has many heads, all of which are crushed by God himself. Leviathan also goes by another name, Rahab, who is a mythical sea monster, a surger of the deep. And in a few passages, Rahab stands as a symbol for Egypt and Babylon, 
who are hostile enemies of God and his people. Therefore, from these passages, Leviathan is a mythical monster. He is serpentine in form, dragon-like, and he dwells in the deep sea, the realm of dark chaos. Moreover, Leviathan is also known outside of Scripture. In Ugarit, Leviathan is called Lothon, and he is described as the fleeing and twisting serpent with seven heads who is conquered by Baal. In one Babylonian myth, Rahab is a warrior for the gods of Tiamat in Kingu. Leviathan, then, is a supernatural sea monster and an arch enemy of the Lord and his people. Now, we might say that he is fiction, a poetic symbol for chaos and evil and hatred against the covenant community. But this is not the whole story about Leviathan. Now, in Isaiah, he is called a sea dragon or a monster, which is the name for the great sea creatures created in Genesis 1 on day 5. Then, in Psalm 104, as the Lord is celebrating his beautiful creation, Leviathan is named as an animal formed by the Lord. There, Leviathan swims in the deep, he follows ships on the high seas, and he plays in the ocean. Here, Leviathan is more so a, is more so benign and natural. He is more like a playful whale or dolphin who follows ships and entertains sailors. Leviathan is to be enjoyed as a beautiful and not particularly dangerous creature. This then makes you wonder if Leviathan is not some sort of prehistoric sea monster like the Baleosaurus or the Tylosaurus, an amalgamation of a whale or shark, a serpent or a dragon, and a reptilian crocodile. Whatever Leviathan is, he's a real animal of history and nature. So then, is Leviathan mythological or natural? Well, as moderns, we separate these as being vastly different, but the ancients did not. The mythological and the natural blurred and merged together. For them, gods used and embodied such animals. Spiritual forces could crossbreed animals to make scarier beasts. Remember that the evil one appeared as a talking serpent in the garden. Likewise, these mythical beasts inhabited the unseen world of the gods and spirits, which made them supernatural but no less real. The natural animal had its mythological analog within the divine realm. Furthermore, when describing the wonders of animals, ancients often would employ poetic and lofty images. Mythological metaphors amplified the majesty of exotic beasts and creatures that they didn't understand very well at times. So the question is, How is Leviathan presented here? Is he more so a naturalistic animal with poetic liberties, or is he a supernatural foe? Or can these even be properly distinguished? Though there's another wrinkle here, for this is not the first time that Leviathan has made appearance in this book. Now, twice under the name Rahab, God pray or Job praised God 
for subduing and defeating the monster. But more so, in chapter 3, Job craved a curse. In agony, Job lamented that he even existed, and he wanted the day of his birth to be erased off the calendar. In deep depression, Job then wished that the magicians would curse the day of his birth, and he called for the sorcerers to rouse Leviathan, who would black out his birthday. Job there, in his first lament, desired for Leviathan to be stirred up, and he was certain that Leviathan had the ability to blot his existence out completely. Hence, Job referred to Leviathan as a supernatural foe, one that could put him out of his misery for good. And this opens up the possibility that Leviathan is connected to the evil accuser in chapter 1 and 2. Remember, God permitted the accuser to take everything away from Job, and then Job wished that Leviathan would finish the job. As foes of Job, the accuser and Leviathan are at least on the same team. Well, at the very beginning, in his first speech, Job had Leviathan on the mind. And now, in the final major oration of the book, and God's as it is, the Lord also brings up Leviathan. In good Hebrew style, the Lord finishes where Job began. And so Yahweh challenges Job to take on Leviathan. You think, Job, that you can be like me. Well, first, you have to get past Leviathan. The Lord dares Job to hunt Leviathan down. Can you hook Leviathan like a fishy? Can you pierce his jaw, stick a ring through his nose, or tie down his tongue? Now, all of these are normal techniques of the ancient world for hunting large beasts like crocodiles or massive fish. So can Job catch Leviathan like one snares a shark or a crocodile? Well, of course not. So also, is he able to capture, tame, and domesticate Leviathan? Will Leviathan beg Job for mercy, plead for a covenant, and be Job's forever vassal? Can Job put Leviathan on a string and train him to be a toy bird for his little girls to play with? Well, what a silly impossibility. What then about butchering Leviathan and selling men at the bazaar for traders and merchants? Can he harvest the meat, the oil, and the hide of Leviathan for a profit? Well, the very suggestion of such a hunt betrays its absurdity. As it says, put your hand on Leviathan, Job. Think of battle, and you'll never do it again. Any hope of defeating Leviathan is false, a far-fetched lie. For, as it says, at the very sight of Leviathan, this hurls men to the ground. People tumble in fear by a distant sighting of Leviathan. You can't even get close to this beast. As the Lord remarks in verse 10, no one is fierce enough to rouse Leviathan. But this was Job's wish in chapter 3 that the magicians would rouse him. And so God corrects. No human is brave enough to do this. 
And this says a lot, for as you know, us humans do all sorts of crazy, scary stuff. People will jump out of planes to fly. They'll take on an elephant for his tusks. Men have even leapt into snowy pits with lions and won. But no man is as fiercely brave or fearlessly reckless enough to poke and prod Leviathan awake. There's not a person in history who can grant Job's wish, which exposes his wish, to be foolish. And this then gets at the real issue. Thus note the second half, half of verse 10. Who can stand before me? Verse 11, who can confront me and I repay him? Remember, Job compared himself with God, not Leviathan. And the impossibility of challenging Leviathan reveals how it is even more impossible to stand up to God. For Job to be humbled before Leviathan is for him to bend the knee to the Lord. The fearsome power of Leviathan instructs on the incomparable might of Yahweh. And this, if you think about it, is kind of the take-home lesson for Job. Indeed, here in verse 11, the Lord could finish his speech. This could be the conclusion to his argument. Job is no challenger for Leviathan, how much less for the Lord. And yet the Lord does not finish here. Yahweh has much more to say. As it goes on, everything under heaven belongs to the Lord, and he will not keep silent about Leviathan. So beautiful is the majesty of this Leviathan that God must wax eloquently. He will brag and boast about his handiwork in Leviathan. Here you can feel the joy and delight of Yahweh in the good works of his creation. It's as if the Lord is in his own musical. He's going to break forth into happy songs about the wonders of Leviathan. And what a four-part harmony. For truly nothing compares to Leviathan's fearsome features. First, in verses 13 through 17, there's his hide, his protective armor. It's not possible to skin Leviathan, for his scales are rows of shields. The doors of his face are encircled with teeth, jagged fangs tipped with terror. And his iron-like scales are so perfectly fit together that not even wind can pass through them. Flawlessly interlocked, no blade can pry his scales apart to pierce the flesh beneath. Leviathan has no soft spot, no weak point. Next, there is, a, there is the breath of Leviathan. First, it says he sneezes light or lightning. Now, this image could be poetic for the blowhole of a whale, as Leviathan does have some whale features. And this, this does feel a bit more naturalistic. And yet, the developing images are completely unnatural. It goes on, torches leap from his mouth, he spews sparks from his lips, smoke billows from his nose like a boiling pot, flames shoot from his mouth, and a puff of air from him ignites coals. Leviathan is a fire-breathing dragon whose eyes glow in the dark like the morning sunrise. 
so fantastic as Leviathan that we have left biology and entered the fairy tale. He's no mere animal. And there's more. For Leviathan is the embodiment of strength and power. Might resides in his neck. Intense force leaps before him. The folds of his skin are cast as hard as iron. His heart is cast like a dense rock, as rigid and solid as a lower millstone. Of course, what does it mean to have a rock-tough heart? Well, it means he's stubborn, inflexible, and close to outside influence. No one can force Leviathan to do something he doesn't want to. Rather, he does what he wants, and he is immune to outside fear, manipulation, and sweet talk. Indeed, so obstinate and strong-willed is the power of Leviathan that it says even the gods are afraid of him when he arises. Verse 25. Literally, this verse says the gods are terrified of Leviathan. Divine beings, spirits, angels, and demons run in fear from him. When Leviathan leaps up and crashes down in ruin, demons and angels cower in fear. They cringe in the corner. What sort of beast is this Leviathan? He terrorizes humans and spirits? Well, this means he has a foot in both realms, the visible and invisible. He splits his time between the human space and the angelic domain. He is natural and mythological at the same time. And he's completely unbeatable. No sword can prevail against him. Javelins, lances, and darts bounce off of him. For him, iron is like straw. Bronze is as soft as rotten wood. Arrows will not chase him off. Stones from slings, which are kind of like rock bullets, they feel like stubble. Indeed, slings were the guns of the ancient world. Thus, no missile and no high-caliber rifle can murder Leviathan. Now, as you know, in fairy tales and myths, there's often some unconquerable fantastic beast, but there's a single weapon that can destroy the monster, the sword of truth, the elder wand, or something of the like. But there is no secret weapon that Leviathan is vulnerable to. All clubs, spears, and blades, magic or not, cannot hurt the Godzilla Leviathan. Furthermore, he glows and emits light. Literally, his underbelly gives off beams of light, and he spreads a gold hue over the mud. In the ocean, he boils the water and makes the deep seas like a tea kettle. Speedboats will leave a wake of white water, but Leviathan's wake is like a bright light. He transforms the dark waters into silver hair blowing in the wind on a sunny day. Like a firefly dragon, he glows and he modifies the black abyss into glimmering silver and white. Surely there is no beast like Leviathan. Nothing in the world compares to him. No living thing on ground can dominate him. No creature of the deep matches him. For as it says, Leviathan was made fearless, 
God fashioned him with no sense of fear. He has no nerves that feel pain, and his heart is immune to anxiety and dread. Leviathan will look upon every high and lofty being. He thumbs through the Rolodex of grand and mighty beast, and they are all inferior to him. He is king of the hill and lord over all the sons of pride. Leviathan is the reigning monarch over all that is proud and arrogant. The crown of pride rests upon the head of Leviathan, and there are no other contenders. And so finishes the bragging of Yahweh about Leviathan. The Lord sings the glories of Leviathan and uh, glories of Leviathan to come to a close and put a period on his speech to Job. Yes, Job can, or God concludes his response to Job with this pride of Leviathan. But why such a conclusion? What's the effect of this ode to Leviathan on Job? How should this impact him? How does this further humble him? How is this supposed to reconcile God, Job to his God? How does Leviathan make sense of all of Job's undeserved suffering and his death wish in chapter 3? Well, the obscure and strange identity of Leviathan actually provides answers on several levels. For one, as a natural animal, Job is no match. For this king of beasts. And if he cannot best one of God's creatures, then there is no comparison between Job and the Creator. To be routed by a creature is to be dwarfed by the Creator. Secondly, as a supernatural monster who scares divine beings, Leviathan is categorized as a created thing of God. Leviathan may travel back and forth between the supernatural and natural realms. He can terrorize angels, but he's still just a creature. To the Lord, Leviathan is a pet. No demon can kill Leviathan, but God could squish him between his fingers. For the Lord to praise and brag about how he fashioned Leviathan means that Yahweh has full control and over ownership over Leviathan. Nothing compares to Leviathan, but Leviathan is no match for the Lord. Finally, Leviathan was the foe that Job wished would finish him off. And to be king over the sons of pride makes Leviathan prone to hubris. Hence, Leviathan regularly embodies the arch enemy of God's people. And insofar as Leviathan is linked to the accuser, he is Job's foe. Yet this common foe of the saints is on the leash of God. Yahweh permits Leviathan only to do his bidding. If God draws a line, Leviathan cannot cross it. Job had doubted God's justice. He questioned how the Lord ruled over the world. Job charged God's providence as being in error. Either God did something wrong or there's some evil outside of God's control. And yet by Leviathan, 
Yahweh reveals that neither is the case. Through Leviathan, the Lord shows that there are beings and forces much mightier than Job or us. Such powers can be evil foes of Job and God's saints. Just as the accuser attacked Job, so also Leviathan can battle the saints. But these overwhelming enemies that we are helpless against, they're in God's hand. As sovereign creator, the Lord is master over Leviathan and over all other enemies. Likewise, as a created thing, Yahweh employs employs Leviathan for his own purposes and plans. The evil of Leviathan seems chaotic to us, but is still part of the well-ordered will of the Almighty. Yes, God can use the pride of Leviathan to humble his people, to humble Job. And as Job is humbled from his pride... Job remains faithful to the Lord. And the fidelity of Job to remain committed to the Lord, even when he suffers for nothing, this humility is what defeats the accuser. It is what can overcome Leviathan. This was, as you'll remember, the original wager between the accuser and God. The accuser was sure that Job would curse God in his suffering. The Lord, though, bet that Job would continue to love him by submitting under his suffering. Therefore, as the Lord uses Leviathan to humble Job, so God enables Job to defeat the accuser by his humility. Job cannot kill Leviathan with his hands. He cannot match the accuser in physical combat. But as Job rests humbly on the Lord, the foes of Job are laid waste. Therefore, Leviathan was created and is used by the Lord to humble his people. And by such humility, they find their true and lasting victory in God. And in this, we get a spotlight on the work of Christ. In Revelation 12, that seven-headed dragon who wages war against the woman and her Christ child, he is draped in the garb of Leviathan. And that Leviathan monster, there in Revelation 12, is named Satan, the evil one, the devil, the accuser. And how did Jesus, as a helpless babe, Defeat the evil dragon. He did by humbling himself unto death. Christ crushed the head of the serpent by having his heel bruised. Jesus conquered for our salvation, not with the weapons of the world. Rather, he defeated his and our arch enemy by trusting himself to the one who judges justice. Jesus vanquished death by dying. He dealt with our sin by becoming sin for us. Thus, in the humility of Christ, we see that the weakness of God is greater than all the might of the world and even the grandeur of Leviathan. By humbling himself and trusting in the Father, Jesus overcame the world 
and the evil one for us in our redemption. Thus, so also, as we believe in Christ and his cross, our humble faith overcomes the world. Yes, through Job here, we see that we do not wage war, our spiritual warfare, with the weapons of the world. To the church, Jesus did not give the sword or the spear. He has not entrusted to us the ways of power, coercion, or money. But God has given us faith. And by humble faith in him, we are more than conquerors. Through faith, the love of Christ never lets us go, and nothing can defeat us from being God's beloved children. For yes, we have many foes that would love to conquer us. These foes can be natural or supernatural, but these enemies are not outside of God's control. They too are created things over which God is sovereign and he uses them for his good purposes. Thus, as we humbly hide ourselves in Christ, as we trust in him, the victory of Christ is ours over all foes, now and forever. Yes, the terror of Leviathan is great, but in Christ we fear him not. For we belong to Jesus, body and soul, in this life and in death, now and for eternity. The power of our foes only magnifies then more the glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thus let us humbly believe in Jesus. May we rest in him and may we walk in humble faith. For through such humility, the love of Christ keeps us in his hands to the praise of his glorious grace and his merciful wisdom. Yes, as we submit to Christ, our faith conquers the world, because Christ is the victor over sin and death, and he sits at the right hand. Amen. Let's pray.